Today, I want, to, uh, I want to talk to you about things that are critically important in your life, faith. You know, in a time of universal deceit, George Orwell said, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. The thing about those words that were written in that novel, 1984, Orwell penned that book in, I believe it was 1946, somewhere in that era. Another one spoke about great civilizations, especially democracies. He was a professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He wrote, uh, as he studied about ancient history and modern history, about what is the plight of democracies and how long do they typically last, if they do last. And he found the average age was about 200 years. His name was Alexander Tidler. He said this, nations progress through the following sequence. Bondage to spiritual faith, spiritual faith to great courage, courage to liberty, liberty to abundance, abundance to selfishness, selfishness to complacency, complacency to apathy, apathy to dependence, and dependence back to bondage. Now, as you heard those, you probably resonated as you thought about our own nation. Let's put it in a chart, make it a little bit easier to see and kind of walk you through this. So if we start over here with bondage, we can think about a people who freed themselves from uh, England and what was happening there, came to America, and they began to search for something deep, uh, a moral clarity, if you will, and said, what is it that we believe? What is it we hold to be true? And from that came the courage to oppose, at the time, one of the greatest civilizations in terms of military at that, at that particular moment. But there was a courage that came out, and they said, no, we believe that the things that we believe are important, the faith, the deep moral uh, fortitude that we have is worth the fight. And so liberty came out of that, and with that, prosperity and freedom began to move down the road. And of course, with that liberty, whenever there's freedom, whenever there's that opportunity, to, to grow and to build and to find expression from the creativity that God gave us, we find abundance. And it begins to move into material things. We begin to get something versus nothing. Then we get to, uh, to a point where we have more than we need, and we kind of juggle that around, and all of a sudden we become a bit selfish in our life. And you can see this cycle in your own personal life. You can see it in the, in the life of a nation. And then we go from selfishness, it's all about my stuff, into complacency, that's entitlement and being self-absorbed. We, we live probably in a very entitled moment in history where people think they deserve something even if they did nothing for it, which is very new to me in the way I grew up. And then there comes uh, basically an apathy. And, and in this process, there's, there's this mindset that says, well, it's not my fault. Why is it my fault? It's the elected officials' fault, but you elected them. We elected them, Right? And so we find this apathy that comes, and then we come to a point of dependence, and that is where there's a point of no return. Government achieves complete control, and we're back into bondage. And it is the cycle that you see in the uh, Old Testament of the nation of Israel, where they find themselves being set free from Egypt and then making their way into the wilderness and coming into the promised land. And every time that they followed the principles of God, they found freedom. They found 
courage. They found the things that were important in their life. And the same thing is true for you and I. So here's the, the first message I want to give you tonight or today in this, in this uh, sermon. It is trust in the Lord. Now that seems like it ought to be a given. You're here. You have identified with church. You've sung great worship songs. But let me just take you through Proverbs chapter three. And I'm going to take you through a little bit slowly so that you can kind of let it sink in. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What part of your heart is not trusting in the Lord today. You see, we make that bold statement. It's like an umbrella statement, trust in the Lord. But what part of your life is not trusting in the Lord? What is it you're not willing to give unto the Lord? And then it, it qualifies that a bit. It said, and lean not into your own understanding. In other words, don't evaluate life based on the way you see it, but rather your trust in the Lord. Because sometimes your understanding is right on the money, and other times it's off, is it not? How many times have you made this reason in your mind and said, well, you know, I, I know church is important, I know Bible reading is important, I know, I, I know, I know, I know, but, and that's leaning on your own understanding. And what that does is it takes you down the wrong path. And then it says, in all your ways acknowledge him. So all my ways means the way I work, the way I go to school, the, the things I do, the way my conversations, and all my ways, I want to acknowledge him. God, I want to give you credit. I want to give you glory. I want to walk with you in everything I do. And then I get the promise, and he shall direct your path. If I don't do that, I'm on my own. I'm directing my own path. I'm going in my own direction. I'm trying to find my own way. And when I try to find my own way, I got a 50-50 chance I'm gonna get it wrong, right? God says if you'll follow me, I'm gonna direct your path. It's gonna be the right way. Let me take you to another promise of trusting in the Lord. It's Isaiah 43 and verse 12. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now just let that sink in a moment. God said, don't fear, why? Because I have redeemed you. What does that mean? It means God bought you out of slavery to sin. He paid a price for you. He said, I have redeemed you, and I've called you by name. I know you. I know you personally, and I've redeemed you. And then he says, you are mine. Do you ever stop and just think about, you belong to God? You don't belong to you. You belong to God. Why? Because he redeemed you, because he called you by name, and he says, you're mine. And guess what? You're gonna pass through some waters, meaning some difficulties. He said, I'm gonna be with you. You notice he didn't say, I'm gonna let you avoid the difficulties? That's, what, that's my version, right? God just take me down a path, but not through the deep waters. No, he says, I'm gonna be with you, though. Don't worry about it. And through the rivers, and they shall not overflow you. In other words, you might get up to your neck in problems, but I'm with you. How's that for a paraphrase? And when I'm with you, you're not going to drown. You just think you're going to drown. You ever had those moments where you go like, I think I'm gonna drown, I can't make it, I can't take any more. God says, oh yes, you can, trust me. Get on your tiptoes. We're going through some deep water today. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. These are promises. These are everyday living promises that we have, amen? Let me take you to 2 Kings chapter six. I wanna set the stage for trust in the Lord. This is a, happens in the period of the prophet Elisha. And it says, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, alas, my master, what shall we do? 
Now stop there. How many times have you been in a problem and you said, what am I going to do? How many times have you called a friend? What am I going to do? And you seek advice either from yourself or outside yourself from a friend, what am I going to do in this situation? And the situation in that day was the city was surrounded by the enemy, and the enemy was going to overcome the city. But the prophet of God was not afraid, and look, in fact, what he said, so he answered, do not fear. Doesn't that seem a little bit trite? We're surrounded by an army, and they're going to kill us all. Do not fear. When you're surrounded by an army, I want you to remember those words. I will not fear. It doesn't mean you're not outnumbered. It doesn't mean that it's not gonna be a challenge. It doesn't mean it's not gonna be difficult. What it means is don't fear. In other words, fear is a spirit that comes into your life and crushes your very courage. The foundational character quality of any person is courage. And courage has to have a basis. It can't just be subjective. It has to be objective. It has to be based on God and God alone. Do not fear. Why not? Because God is gonna get me through this. What if he doesn't? Then I'm still gonna trust him because he's God. If you look in the, in the book of Daniel, when, when the king threatened to throw him in the fiery furnace, they said, that'll be fine. God will deliver us. And if not, that'll still be fine. You see, because courage comes from God. Courage is something that, he, that God woven into your, has woven into your very DNA, into your very life as a human being. But when you get it energized by God himself, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of you and all that you ever will have, there's something happens. And then the prophet said this, for those who are with us are more, more than those who are with them. Can you imagine the servant? He's going, <clears throat> well, um, Elisha, there's just me and you. It's just us. What are we going to do? And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. Do you realize that you're seeing in the physical realm, but do you know that there's a spiritual realm that you can see into as well? And sometimes God will give you a glimpse of that. Maybe it's just an impulse in your heart. Maybe it's a thought you have. Maybe it's a literal vision. Maybe it's just seeing the pages from the word of God become alive. But God will give you that, and you begin to see. Open his eyes, and the young man, and it says of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What if you could have that vision when you're in your biggest crisis that God would just say, open your eyes. I want you to see what's surrounding you. See, we get all caught up with demons. Oh, the demons are bad, right? Devil's bad. Well, just remember this. One-third of the demons fell. That means two-thirds are angels who haven't fallen. So we got a two-to-one advantage right there. Okay? And we haven't even got God in the picture. Now, what about Satan? Well, but Satan, he's kind of scary. I mean, he's been bugging me all day. Let me tell you something. If he's been bugging you all day, you must be really important because he can only be at one place at one time. Only God can be all places at all times. So he's, if he's spending time with you, good. that's good, because he's not messing with me. <laughs> Amen? Okay, so, so think about this. So now you've got, well, what about God, and, God and, and, and Satan, and they're battling out? No, that's dualism. We don't believe in dualism. We don't believe that there's, you know, we're, they're gonna duke it out, and we think God's gonna come through at the end because he's the best fighter. No, no, no. Everything in the universe is subject to the sovereign God of the universe. Satan only gets to go as far as God allows him. He only interferes with your life when you give him freedom to work because you yield authority and dominion to him. 
Jesus said, all power and authority is given unto me. You go forth in my power, in my authority, and you proclaim the gospel to every person everywhere you go, and do not hold back anything anywhere from anyone. Don't fear. Be courageous. Be strong. I have made you this way. When you stand up in the middle of fear, you become more courageous for the next thing. Oh, but our enemy, he has a strategy. Let me show you the strategy of the enemy. Take you back to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19, a peculiar verse. Remember your studies on civics. Well, do you remember your studies on the Bronze Age and the Iron Age? Well, no, why would I remember that? Well, you see, there was this period in history where the only thing they could really make tools out of besides stones and sticks was bronze. And, and this whole idea of iron, this would exist, but they couldn't heat the iron hot enough to create weapons of steel. And so they're always fighting with these bronze items, and they would soon run out of tin, and so things would be kind of tough, and they're trying to figure out how to make a better weapon to clobber the guy next to me. That's really what it was all about. Well, it seems that when they moved from the Bronze Age in, into, into this next age of the Iron Age, that the Philistines, remember them? My Harvard professor called them the Philistines. He had a different name for everything. I think he thought it made him smart. Okay, but anyway, so, so they had, uh, had cornered the market on this idea of iron and creating steel. So they had the best weapons. But here's what they did to Israel. Now look at the scripture, so you'll understand this. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So what did they do? The strategy of the enemy was to take away their weapons. The strategy of the enemy has not changed. He is to take away your weapon. What's your number one weapon? God inhabits the praises of his people. So what, do they, what does the governor of California say? You can't gather, and if you do gather, you cannot sing. We were very bad citizens. We decided that, that if God inhabits the praises of his people, then we should worship the almighty God, amen? And if that resulted in Pastor Nate or someone else going to jail, we were, we were more than willing to give them up, amen? But what, one of our weapons is the word of God, so you can't gather, so you can't preach the word of God. So those are weapons the enemy wants to take. That's the blacksmith. Take the blacksmith out. So whenever Israel needed to have their plow or their tools sharpened or repaired, they had to go down to Gaza to the Philistines and have them do it, and they had to pay for that. All right, now let's go a little bit further. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, 22. So it came about on the day of the battle, for there was neither sword nor spear found, in the hand of any people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. There was only two swords in the entire land of Israel, and they're getting ready to face Goliath. This is why Goliath, when he came out and he saw David, he said, are you gonna fight with me with sticks and stones? That's all they had. That's all anybody had. They had two swords. Guess what? One sword is enough. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing the division of the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow, revealing the true intentions of the heart. All you need is one sword, amen? 
you take that sword and you put it in your heart and you release it in your life and you'll see what God can do. The strategy of the enemy. Let me give you three things you can jot down. One is he tries to deconstruct history. What does that mean? Oh yes, there was a constitution, but that's not what it means. Let me tell you what it means today. Or that was great for that time. How about history? How about rewriting history and so that your kids don't understand what history is all about or the history of a nation? Hey, are we a perfect nation? Far from it. But we should know about our good and our bad at the same time and not be reinvented by someone with an agenda to destroy the historical narrative that we've lived out in our life as a people. Amen? You know, I look back on my life, I can see things I did wrong. I gotta learn from that. I need to remember that. What if every time I did a bad thing, I forgot about it? Well, I, I didn't do anything bad. I know people, I, I, not, not me, I never did anything wrong. No, you couldn't learn from that. How about control the narrative? Let me tell you what it means to control the narrative. You see, the left have really kind of taken this to say, let me frame the argument for you. Okay, they don't say it in these words. Don't you believe that every family is important? I don't know. I gotta think about that. What do you mean by family? So they reframe the argument, so they redefine family, and they even define, redefine the people within that in terms of their gender. So now I'm not sure what you're talking about. But when they reframe the argument, I find myself always on the defensive trying to fix the problem. So I think we reframe it and say, I believe in family values. Now, if you're on the left side of this, you're trying to argue that. Well, what do you mean by family values? Well, I believe, number one, that the traditional family is important if it's possible to keep that together. A husband, a wife, and children. We recognize divorce, we recognize things go wrong, and even in that situation, we believe that we as a church should be as supportive as we can of single moms, of single parents, and helping to raise children. We're gonna, we're gonna hold the ideal up, but we're gonna deal with the real in our life, amen? But let me tell you what they're really after. They're after your kids to capture a generation. If they can capture your children and distort their mindset with Marxist ideology and destroy the idea of morality and take away history, what do you have left? What are your kids gonna deal, how they're gonna deal with life if they have no basis for doing that? They're really the capturing of a generation. We just had uh, here at church our Kids camp, all week long, had over 300 here, and it was a lot of fun, and many of you helped support a lot of those kids that came. I want you to show, uh, see a, a short video just to show you how, what happened at kids camp and how we really stressed the importance of prayer, the power of God, the word of God, and above all for kids, fun, amen? So watch the video.
So we just distilled 28 hours of fun time with kids and down to three minutes. Right, isn't that great? You know, we will raise up a generation of kids that love God. And we will do everything we possibly can to ensure that as a church and as a community we stand for God and we will compromise on no level when it comes to pushing forward those values and those things that are important, amen? I'm telling you what, God's raising up champions for Christ. Some of these kids, it's unbelievable. Just uh, the heart they have for God, the heart they have for prayer. I want you to know the victory always belongs to the Lord. When you align yourself with him, I, I love this statement. When the Lord is your ally, your enemies become his weapons. 
Throughout Scripture, you're going to see that in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going a little bit forward in that Samuel passage. It says that God took the Philistines and, and he, even though they had two swords, right, he took and he began to get the army in a disarray and they used their swords against each other. 1 Samuel 14, 20, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was great confusion. You see, what's happening and what's gonna happen is God will not be mocked. And what's happening in our world today and this mocking of God and mocking of truth and trying to destroy values, it will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. He will turn this thing around. Psalm 91 in verse seven says, a thousand may fall uh, at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. I want you to know God's people will be protected. We will move forward in power because Isaiah 54 says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage. This is why you came into the family. This is your heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. It's not because you're righteous, not because you're super good. You see, all of us fall short of God. It's his righteousness that he gives unto us through relationship. And when he gives us relationship and we come into that relationship with him, he gives us his righteousness. And so that when I stand before God, I stand before him as a saved, re redeemed, restored, forgiven human being. And when I fail, I come to him and I say, I confess, that means agree with God, I agree with you, God, that I failed. You see, God sets the ideal, never sin. But the real is, you will sin. And the Bible says, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Your sin is forgiven because of the blood that was shed at Calvary for you. Amen? And you say, well, I feel guilty about what I, no, guilt doesn't come from God. Conviction comes from God. Guilt comes from your enemy or your neighbor. But conviction comes from the God, and God says, I love you with an everlasting love, and I can transform you from where you are into, the, into a son and a, and a daughter of Almighty God, amen? I want you to stand together with me, and I, I wanna pray right now. I wanna ask you to pray. I wanna ask you to examine your heart right now and, and, and just ask this very simple question, just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Am I confident right now that I truly know the Lord? Am I confident right now that I truly know the Lord? I don't mean know about him, I mean know him. Only you can answer that question. Didn't ask if you're religious, didn't ask if you've been baptized, didn't ask if you took communion, I just asked, do you really know the Lord? That is, if you were standing before him right now at his throne in eternity, and he said to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? See, if the answer is I'm religious or the answer is I've tried my best, then that's, that answer falls short. The right answer is there was a moment in my life when I yielded my life to Christ. I confess my sin. I ask him to be my Lord and my Savior. You may or may not know when that date was, but you know that happened. And that's the answer. Have you had, do you have that answer? If not, that answer can happen today right here in this place. So I'm gonna pray a prayer. I'm gonna just let it be your prayer. You can pray along with me where you stand or sit. If you're watching um, 
on the website or if you're watching or from outside in our pavilion. But pray a prayer like this one. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Come into my heart and save me. Be my Lord, be my Savior, according to your word and its promises. In Jesus' name. Now before you say amen, if that was your prayer, thank him in your own words right where you are. Just thank him in your own words right where you are. If that was your prayer today, would you just slip your hand up? Just say, Pastor, I want, it, I want you to know and I want God to know that that was my prayer today. Amen? Amen. Just slip your hands up. Keep them up for just a second. God bless you all. God bless you all. Follow after God now with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Love him. Uh, love him all the days of your life and follow him. Amen? Be worshipers. Be, be students of the word. Be good citizens of this nation that we find ourselves in. Declare freedom, freedom in Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna sing uh, just a little bit here and then we're going to close. But as we sing, I want you to just be reminded as you go out, uh, see uh, Judge Starr out there, get him to sign a book for you. Uh, Ken, that was uh, a marvelous. I, I mean, I could, I could listen to you all day long. Thank you so much. Alice, so good to have you with us. And uh, good to have my, my stubborn friend Jim Rogan with me. I love you, buddy. Let's sing together. <laughs>